Well, thank you for the introduction, Matt. Your, grand, your grandfather was one of my favorite preachers, so maybe there's a bit of a connection there. Jake always had a way of, um, seemed like he always had a way of bringing the message to um, my level as a, as a young person and always had a, a story or something to go with the message, so I always appreciated that. And I do um, I find it unique and interesting as well to, to share the pulpit with Matt, um, like he said, uh, friends with our sons. And, and uh, Matt, as you were uh, standing up here this morning, I, I couldn't help but see a little bit of your mom in you this morning. And of course, we miss her. And um, thank you for your input in our son's lives. Um, Matt and one of our boys were in a men's group uh, in a time when, when he needed, our son needed um, other men to speak in his life, and it was a blessing. So we're thankful to be here. Um, of course, we, we, we know many of you, and I will say as time goes on, the scene here changes a bit, and there's a number of you families here that I, I don't have names for and I can't put uh, faces to, and that's a little different um, because we used to know everybody that came to Peckway, and we used to know everybody that went to Weavertown, and, and that, uh, of course, changes a bit as time moves on. And then I have to say this as well um, to my Aunt Barbie. I miss um, Uncle Sammy's presence. He used to sit up here. And uh, Sammy would always come to me then and say, um, talk about me being his favorite nephew. But he said that to all of us nephews. So uh, there's quite a, a bit of a competition amongst the nephews to, to be called his favorite. <clears throat> The subject that was assigned to me, and for those of you who are visitors here, um, uh, there's a group of us local churches that work together somewhat, and recently uh, we've we collaborated, and, and each ordained brother from the churches was, or, was given us an assigned subject to uh, study, prepare for, and share at the other churches. We've done this a few times over the years. It's always been a blessing. Um, for that. The, the subject that was assigned to me was maintaining a biblical focus in a complex world. And I, I think we would all agree that the world we live in is complex, and I'm not sure that we should be sad about that, or, or um, I feel like we spend a lot of time sometimes talking about the negatives of, of um, technology and, and the life as we know it. Um, but I think we need to figure out that this is where we are. This is um, where we're at. And God has placed us here for a time and for a purpose. And we need to figure out how to navigate through that in the way that he wants us to do. When we think about trying to, to, to figure out how we as, as typically conservative people uh, are to interact and relate to the complex world that we find ourselves in, uh, you know, we could give a 10-step list. Um, but I'm not a big fan of, of these self-help books that say 10 minutes with God or five steps to this or seven steps to that. We can learn. There's things we can learn from that. But to, to give a 10-step list would make it a little bit easy um, for us to check off the things that, that we can check off. And then when we get to the bottom of the list, think now we've arrived, now we're doing fine. And, but your list could probably, should probably be different than mine, and mine will be different than yours. And, and each of us has, while we have a lot of similarities, there's so each of us has different, um, different things that we face in life, different, there's personalities, different upbringings that all um, 
play into how we respond to the world we find ourselves in. And so I think there's probably something a little bit more than that um, for us to look at. A subtitle also assigned to was preserving a simple lifestyle. And um, I wonder sometimes how we as Anabaptists find it for ourselves how to properly um, how to properly apply this to our lives, because again, I, I feel like we've been placed here for a time and for a purpose. God has given us a lot of abilities, a lot of resources. We live in this bubble, sort of an economic bubble, I think, here in, in the greater Lancaster County area where we're, we're, we're insulated or maybe more insulated from uh, some of the uh, economic stresses that, that other parts of the world um, struggle with and face that we may not uh, feel as quickly as other parts of the United States, uh, just if, if we just keep li even limit it to just the United States. I think of COVID, for instance, and, and COVID years. Well, you know, we paused for a moment here in Lancaster County, but we didn't pause long, and soon we boomed. And, and it was banner years for many, many people in business here in Lancaster County area. So what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? Well, in other parts of the the world, uh, the idea of, of, of the um, payment protection plan that the government, governor was offering was maybe more of a real need than it was for us here in this area. So we have this thing, and I've grappled with it, I've pondered with it over the years. How do we live? Uh, how do we maintain a simple lifestyle? How do we respond properly to the world that we find ourselves in? And of course, now in recent years, minimalist living is a movement. Tiny homes have taken off and sold, and, and I think about that sometimes. Uh, you know, there's these heirloom pieces that our grandmothers have that their great-grandmothers and grandmothers gave them, and they want to pass them on to us. And today, our, our young people would look at that and they say, why? You know, it's just clutter. And so we have all these things that are, are grappling, are pulling for our time, pulling for our attention, and we have to figure out how to respond well to it. And as I pondered this uh, subject, my mind was drawn to this parable of the sower, a familiar portion of scripture, Jesus speaking to the people in parables, um, natural, using natural um, things for an object lesson to teach the principles that he was trying to teach. And in Matthew, and Matthew Mark, and Luke, all three record this parable. I like Luke's rendering the best, and that's why we're gonna use that for a, a a basis to start with this morning. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus was teaching and there was, there was a, a lot of people had come around and he, he got to be so many people that he, he got into a boat and he moved off land a little bit just simply to be able to um, work with the, the crowd that was there. Just prior to this, Jesus had said, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Let's think about this parable a little bit. There's four elements to this parable, again, familiar to us all, and especially in the agricultural setting that we find ourselves in. There's the sower, the seed, the soil, and the birds. We can easily identify with these four elements. The sower is the person who sprinkled the seed into the prepared furrows. And then he describes four types of soil, and I'm gonna give an overview and then we'll come back and look at them in a little bit more detail. 
There's the wayside soil. The wayside soil is the soil that's along the, the path or on the path. The unplowed ground, it's packed down. It's hard packed from a use and from a maybe even just a, a little overuse. And there's no possibility of the seed entering this ground. It's too hard. Then there's the stony soil. Some of us grew up in farms where there was stony soil. We know a little bit of what this is like. There's enough soil that the ground, that the seed can, can, can work its way into the ground, can take root, but not enough to sustain growth. And then, and dry. There's not enough of moisture there uh, to sustain growth. Then there's a thorny soil. This is another way of saying weedy soil, where there's weeds, and, and the weeds have not been sufficiently cleared away to allow the plants to grow and mature. And then the fertile soil, which is the rich, well-prepared soil that can receive the seed. <clears throat> the, birds is, the birds follow along as the farmer scatters the seed. Uh, maybe we don't see this quite so much in our modern agricultural methods, but we do see some of it as the farmers are working in the fields. We see the birds coming along, trying to, to snatch up the seed as much as possible before any good thing can come out of it. <clears throat> now let's look a little bit <clears throat> at the meaning of the parable. The seed, as we know and understand and agree, is the word of God. It's communicated by reading the scriptures, by preaching, and sometimes by divine providence or the Holy Spirit. Uh, people who may not be as privileged to have the, the amount of preaching and teaching that we have access to today, God finds other ways to bring his word to their lives. <clears throat> the sower is the means by which that seed is spread, and the soil is the hearts of mankind. Let's look at these four types of hearts that are described, that Jesus mentioned here in this parable. <clears throat> the wayside heart is, as I mentioned before, hardened and packed down, impenetrable. The soil, the seed can't get into this wayside heart. And there's a variety of reasons that could contribute to that, especially when we think of us as people and, and on our hearts. Um, <clears throat> There are those who are born into situations where they really haven't heard the gospel, haven't had much opportunity even to hear the gospel, and they don't know what it's about. Um, there are people who have had difficult situations that they find themselves in. They've been misused, perhaps abused by others, wronged, and so they, they, they put, put these shells around their hearts to protect themselves from further danger, and it's hard for the word to reach into and penetrate I say it's hard for the word. God's word is not limited by anything. But yet we have to be open to receive it. And people who have been wronged by others and abused um, find it difficult to open themselves up and receive the truth of God's word at times. Sometimes it's simple responses to life's difficulties. We all face difficulties in life and issues, and we build shells and walls around ourselves and don't allow the word to penetrate into our hearts. Matthew's rendering says, and understandeth not. The wayside heart can't receive the word and doesn't, or doesn't understand it. <clears throat> the stony heart, then, is that which receives the word with joyful reception, um, but there's a shallow commitment. Maybe it's because of an easy believism gospel that was preached, um, 
accept Christ and all your troubles will go away. You know, some of those kinds of teachings that are around. And, and other things as well. But the, the heart with joy receives the word, but then the stones of selfishness block the seed from reaching the soil. I do want to mention as well, uh, John, your devotional this morning was uh, an excellent uh, backdrop for the message. I was uh, challenged by that. Stones of selfishness blocking the seed from reaching the deep soil in our hearts and quickly uh, withers any root, anything that, that uh, any fruit that, or any plant that starts growing from that seed. Quickly withers when trials of faith come along. The thorny heart then is the good, is good soil, but it's too crowded, it's too distracted, it's too busy to, to allow the seed, uh, to allow the plant. The seed can come in and it can start growing, but because of the distractions, because of the busyness, it never really blossoms and brings forth the fruit that it has the potential to bring. Thinking of applying that into our lives, it could be uh, maybe similar to the children of Israel. When they went into the promised land, they had the command to cast out all the people, all the strangers of the land, to drive them out. And, and we know they didn't do that, and it was those very people that they didn't drive out that came back to haunt them later. As, as believers, when we receive the word and it, it roots itself into our hearts, do we drive out? any distractions that, that keep that seed from uh, growing. Trying to keep uh, one foot on each side of the door. It's the cares, it's the riches and the pleasures of this world that choke out the word that, and at times from bringing forth fruit. The care of this world is the anxieties, the worries. Sometimes we're overwhelmed with even the temporal things of life and even life itself can be overwhelming at times and we allow the cares of this world and we try to carry them ourselves and it drowns out growth in our lives deceit the deceitfulness of wicked of riches i'm sorry the deceitfulness of riches is another weed that crowds out the word from rooting it in in our hearts and lives the Bible has much to say about the deceitfulness of riches. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The deceitfulness of riches. I think we can relate to this one, can't we? We have a lot, as I've already mentioned, we have a lot of opportunity, and we're taught to be um, productive. We're taught to work efficiently. We're taught to, to uh, know how to, to get it done and make money. And how do we handle that? What, how, are, how is that affecting our heart and our walk with the Lord? Thinking of, of maintaining a biblical focus in a complex world with all the options and possibilities that are at our fingertips. Luke adds one more to this list, and he calls it the pleasures of this life. Mark says, lusts of other things. And this is satisfying the appetites of the flesh, including but not limited to sensual desires. And that we can see around us as well in the world. 
um, plenty of opportunities. Uh, we have we have access and we can do things uh, that maybe some years ago we simply didn't have the money for, but today it seems like we have uh, more money for that. All of these above three things, they promise much. They produce nothing of lasting value and are elusive and evasive at best. And when the things of life become more important to us than God, they become idols and stifle our relationship with him. The other heart that's described here is the fruitful heart, and this one's much more pleasant to talk about. It's the soil that's cultivated by submission and surrender and discipline. It has allowed the plowshares of the word to break up its fallow ground, has responded biblically to the difficulties of life. And I think of, uh, for a number of years, our next door farm, the farm next to, to, door to where we live was farmed by horses. And I thought, I, I was often intrigued uh, just watching them just steadily plodding along day after day out in those horses. You know, as that, as that team of horses would pull that plow, there was how many horses? Four, six, whoever. I never drove horses, so I don't know. And um, pardon me if I'm using the wrong terminology, but think about that. Those horses stumping the ground and then the plow coming along and breaking up the ground. Yeah, that ground was taking a beating. But it's as it was turned, and I know that today's modern farming methods, we, we say that we should use no-till farming. So we're not here to discuss that. But thinking about what it takes for a seed to grow and, and bring forth, to be able to penetrate that ground and to, to be fruitful, the ground has to be prepared and it has to be ready to do that. And by the time the farmer's plow turned that ground over, it, and, and he came back with the plants or the plant, the, the ground was worked up, it was loose. The thorns, the thistles and stones were removed. The springtime sun had warmed the soil, rains had kept it moist and receptive and as that planter came through and the seed is planted, it settles in, the ground can receive the seed and keep it from the birds and the predators who want to take it away. And that ground takes that seed in and absorbs it and feeds it. And we know how that works. The seed germinates and, it, and, a, and a, uh, a little shoot comes up out of that seed and that plant pushes through the dirt and grows to be a, a tall plant. And all of a sudden out of one grain of corn, you get many, many more kernels of corn. It grows into a fruitful plant producing much more than what was planted. This honest and good heart is able to hear the word and able to keep the word and it, the word brings forth fruit as a result of that. But we have to deal with that destroyer of our souls constantly. The birds are out there, the destroyer's out there trying to snatch away that seed and keep it from bringing forth fruit in our lives and that's where the distractions come in at all the time. I was recently challenged by a writing by A.W. Tozer, and I'll share that in, in thinking about uh, where our focus is and what we allow to penetrate our lives, where we spend our time, and how we use 
the resources that are given to us. This is what Tozer writes. Of all the calamities that have been visited upon the world, the surrender of the human spirit to this present world and its ways is the worst, without doubt. No oriental monarch has ever ruled his cowering subjects with any more cruel tyranny than things. Visible things, audible things, tangible things rule mankind. That we who were made to communicate with angels and archangels and seraphim and with the God who made them all, that we should settle down here as a wild eagle of the air, come down to scratch in the barnyard with the common hens. This, I say, is the worst of anything that has ever come to the world. It seems incredible that we who were made for many worlds should accept this one world as our ultimate home. It kind of is an interesting way of putting words to, to how do we see life and where is our focus and is the scratching around on this temporal earth really what we're called to? What are we as, as human beings called to? What did God create us for? What Satan wants to put in front of us is so temporal and what the world wants to offer us around us is so temporal and yet it's what we see all the time, it's what we experience and so it's so also so tempting. But we have to keep an eternal focus. Just in a conversation the other evening with a few men from church, and it was uh, interesting. To th I've thought about it before, but it was interesting to discuss it again uh, as a group of men. But think about this. When you pass away, any one of us here, when we pass away, how many years will it take till you're forgotten? I could mention Aaron Glick. There might be a, a third of the people here that actually remember Aaron Glick. Um, staunch, stalwart, man of truth, preached the word, stood right here at this pulpit many times. A man we love to hear, but, you know, where's Aaron? He passed away. And we still learn. We, we still have things that we remember he said. But many people here would never have remembered him. And, and even if you go back to your grandfather, great-grandfather, how long does it take till you're forgotten? It's really not that long till we're forgotten. So what really are we spending our time on, where we are focusing on? I think of the four types of soil. Uh, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about the thorny ground. It's probably the one bad soil that most of us identify with. And I'd like to look at a few other portions of scripture. I'm going to read a few verses from, from 1 John 2. Again, thinking of ourselves in this world and what God is calling us to be. 1 John 2 reading verses 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth the way, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Uh, John lays it out quite simply. 
If any man loved the world, we don't have the love of the Father in us. It can't, we can't have both. It's one or the other. You love the world or you love the Father, not both. And the things of the world are temporal. They pass away. They're here for a time. And I feel like maybe in past years, and, and I mentioned Aaron Glick, I, back in that era of time, maybe we heard more messages on portions of scripture like this than uh, we do, at least at Mine Road. I don't know what um, you all hear a lot here, but think about this. Love not the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Three things that encompass everything that the world has to offer. The lust of the flesh pertains to the sensual desires of the flesh. Food, comfort, um, sex. It's, it's, and we see it in the world around us. It's what is promoted and put in front of us in marketing and in advertising. Uh, live a comfortable life. Be comfortable. Eat good. Um, the, the billboard's advertising food. You know it's better than it actually, looks better than it actually is. But it has to be, and it draws us in. Prominent in the world around us is just to satisfy yourself and your personal desires in whatever way that you want. The lust of the eyes is that which pleases the eye. Extravagant beauty, obsessed with the vanities of life. And again, we live in a time when, when this is a little bit more possible for us to attain to than it may have been some 40 years ago or 30, 50 years ago. I'm not sure what time you want to put to it. It's the possessions, the property, the homes, and the clothing um, that pertain to the lust of the eyes. That which is beautiful and that which we, is uh, attractive. And it's okay. It's, uh, beauty has its place. Beauty can draw us into worship as well if, if we allow it to and if that's where uh, we allow our hearts to go to. But there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of... Um, Maybe it's pressure we put on ourselves, but it's still, you just drive around and you see, the, and you see this house and you see how nice it is and the flower beds, and, or you see all kinds of things that we see and that we want to be and do. And we're taught how to, how to attain to that. We can, we can do that. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, then has to do with the positions of power, the desire for positions of power and prestige and honor uh, titles and pedigrees. There's that within us that wants to be recognized, wants to be noticed, and wants to be honored for what we do. <clears throat> but John, in writing to the church, said, these things are not of the Father. These things are very temporal. They're short-lived. They won't last very long at all. And it's only what's done for the Father that will last. Turn now with me to First uh, Timothy chapter 6. And I'd like to focus the last part of this message on keeping an eternal perspective. Again, a familiar portion of scripture. I'd like to remind us this morning again what this has for us and how we can apply it to our lives. And I think when we focus on God's word and what it says, what it teaches us, is going to be our best way to, to, to know how to live um, or to maintain a biblical focus in, in a complex world. 
And I'll read 1 Timothy 6, starting verse 3 through 12, and then 17 through 19. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse, perverse div- verse 5, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyselves, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we'll carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. And then we'll jump to verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to communicate, willing to communicate, I'm sorry, ready to distribute. Okay, let's start here. Verse 18. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, and avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which while some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Keeping an eternal perspective as we maneuver in the life, in the world that we find ourselves in. He says godliness with contentment is great gain. We've grown up hearing that. We know that verse. What is contentment? Godliness with contentment is great gain. My wife had a motto around the house for a while, and it said contentment is being satisfied with what I have. I don't think contentment's a word that we do real well with in the world that we live in because there's so much information being bombarded to us and so much, and, and, and all the advertising and marketing is designed and has the intent to make you want more than what you have. Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Keeping that in focus as we maneuver between the coming and the going of our lives is, is a challenge, and we can get carried away. We can get, uh, I shouldn't say carried away, we can get absorbed and wrapped up in the daily uh, demands of life and forget that, you know what, we came empty-handed, and we're going to leave empty-handed. And I think of that often when we bury people, and I'm not um, casting judgment on anyone, but... Um, we buried my father 16 years ago, and, and we bought a nice coffin to bury him in. <laughs> and 
We saw that thing for about three days and then we covered it up with dirt. What is the sense? We're taking nothing out. Um, we brought nothing in. Life is but a vapor, the Bible tells us. Can we keep that in focus as we, move, as we go through our daily lives? We brought nothing into this world and we're gonna take nothing out. It doesn't matter how much we've accumulated in between. Now, I will say, and step ahead just a bit, but if you look at verses 17, 18, and 19, he doesn't leave us hanging out to dry because if we did accumulate, and if we were able to accumulate a lot of things in between the coming and the going of our lives, there is something that we can do with that and about that. And I think it's why God has given us, one of the reasons why God has given us these things and has, has given us these abilities to, to be successful, to, to, to make money, um, and that is to share with others. Verse 18, rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, uh, giving up, uh, giving to others, uh, spending and investing our, the money, the wealth that we've been able to accumulate and, and using it for the advancement of God's kingdom. There's so much need around us, so many needs in the world around, so many uh, mission opportunities anymore. Um, travel is so easy and, and with Communication is so easy. You can go to almost anywhere in the world and you can still communicate with your loved ones at home. And so I think that is one of the things that as we, God can bless that. Being rich and being able to make a lot of money isn't an automatic condemnation on our lives. It's not what God has in mind. But what we do with that and how we respond to it is what is important to God. And verse 18 gives us a key. Verse 17 also says that, that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. So it's not wrong to enjoy what God has given to us. But again, it's, it's how we view it and how we perceive it and what we decide to do with it um, that is important and that is what judges us or, or blesses us. And as we give, as we share um, and communicate to the needs around us, we lay up stores, uh, lay up a foundation against the time to come. I think God has rewards. I don't understand how that works. Because I, I don't want to stand here and say that if one person is able to give a million dollars, the next person can only give a hundred dollars, that when he gets to heaven, the guy that gave a million dollars is going to have a bigger reward than the guy that gave a hundred dollars. We know that's not how God sees it. I don't know how he decides that. But he does say in verse 18 that as we give and as we distribute, to those in need, we lay up in store for ourselves a good foundation against the time to come that we may lay hold on eternal life. Going back then to verse 8, again talking about contentment and saying, having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. So that begs the next question then, how much is enough? If contentment is being satisfied with what I have, how much is enough? How much food and how much raiment? A few weeks ago, Willie and I, um, with our sons and the rest of the 7th and 8th grade boys from Fairhaven School and a few other men, hiked a section of the Appalachian Trail. I've done it before, um, and I'm always intrigued as, as we plod along on, on the trail, and, and what we have to live on is carrying on our backs. And the goal as you hike is to not carry more than you absolutely have to, because every pound that you start out with turns into two pounds when you're about when you're, when, when you're on the trail and walking with that on your back. 
And so you really boil it down to the basics. And it's kind of intriguing um, how much you can live with. Of course, we did it for two nights, and we know we could starve ourselves for two days if we wanted to, and we'd catch up when we get home. But really, if we break it down, how much do we actually need to live with? And verse 9 and 10 then warn us against the snares of money. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. The love of money is the root of all evil. And unfortunately, we've seen that evidence in, in, in the lives of people around us. Probably all of us know individuals, people who, uh, when it came to money, uh, otherwise were respectable, looked up to men of God, perhaps. But when it came to money, they turned into different people. Um, even in the business world, uh, we face some of those things. And, 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 and money can make, uh, make animals out of men. It can grab us, it can grip us, um, and he gives us lots of warning. The love of money is the root of all evil. <clears throat> Verse 9, they that will be rich, they, they, those that are driven by the desire to be rich, fall into temptation and into a snare, and to many foolish and hurtful lusts that drown men in destruction and perdition. When you're driven uh, by the desire to, to accumulate and to get rich beyond when that is your main focus and the main drive in your life, it really causes men, causes people to do a lot of hurtful things. It can cause people to make do bus dishonest business dealings. It can cause people to put their families ahead of their, I mean, sorry, their work ahead of their families uh, driven by that uh, needing to make that last dollar. And I don't have to put more words to it, you know. Um, and I, like I've said before, I think you've probably seen, all of us have seen people who are driven by money and, and lose their good morals and good values in the process. It doesn't have to be, but we have seen illustrations of that. Verse 11 then, he says, but flee these things. And follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life. It takes work. It takes a desire. Flee these things. These things that have wings. These things that promise much but, promise much but deliver little. These things that absorb our time and steal our relationships. These things that choke out the word of God from bringing forth fruit in our lives. Flee those things. Turn your back on them, run from them, and follow after the things that have lasting value, things that build each other up, things that enhance our relationship with God and his people, things that Galatians says that against such there is no law, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. <clears throat> we don't need to put definition to those words. We're familiar enough with what they mean. That, that's what we're called to follow after and leave the other things behind. Fight the good fight of faith. It indicates that it takes work, it takes effort, it takes energy on our part. We have to decide, we have to choose. Lay hold is the words used in verse 12 as well. Lay hold and keep this commandment in verse 14 without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ 
until we reach the goal. Again, keeping that eternal focus, remembering that someday our life here is going to be over, whether we die or whether he comes again to receive the church to himself. This life, this temporal life here on earth will end and it will quickly be forgotten. So keeping eternal focus um, before us. So how do we respond to the world that we find ourselves in? We have opportunities, as I've been talking about. And I've already mentioned that this community that we live in has been described as recession-proof. And we don't know what God has ahead of us. We talked about that in our Sunday school lesson. Uh, did, did, did the Egyptians and the children of Israel, uh, during the seven years of plenty, did they know, did everyone know that there was going to be seven years of famine? If they did, how did they prepare? How, if they didn't, how did they prepare? It didn't seem like some of them prepared very well. <clears throat> There's a degree to which we can't control the circumstances of our life. God has placed us here. I didn't choose to be born in Lancaster in a hospital there, but that's where I was born. You didn't choose to grow up here necessarily. Uh, we move and we move around, but where God has placed us, um, we didn't choose. Uh, but it is our choice how to respond to life to, and the circumstances that are before us. And to a large degree, we chart the course for our life. God has given us that opportunity. He allows us. We are created creatures of choice. <clears throat> it has been said we can choose the destination and accept the path or choose the path and accept the destination. So in closing, I think there are several things that we need to reckon with. I believe first and foremost we need to reckon with does the Bible say what it means? And does the Bible mean what it says? Because if it does, then we have a guide and we can look it up, we can read it, we can study it, we can meditate on it, we can apply it to our lives. Is that our main and primary focus, the Bible and what it says and what it means? And then thirdly, what am I going to do about it? Where is our heart? What are we walking after? What are we willing to put the work into? Are we willing to put the work into getting rid of the thorns, the weeds, and stones that distract us from the word, that keep that seed from germinating and maturing and bringing forth much fruit? Are we willing to put the work into that? Because it takes work, it takes effort, it takes energy on our parts. Are we willing to put forth the energy and sweat and tilling the soil of our hearts so that our hearts can be receptive to the seed as it is sown. Let's kneel for prayer.